by Curbio Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment. I'm Tess. And I'm John, and it's time for The Bomb. That's right, The Bomb in the morning. We hope you enjoyed the recent interview frenzy we just went through, but I bet you missed our quirky nerdy voices together. Today, it's all about the best of microbiology news, our favorite microbe articles from across five main categories. That include extremophiles, food agriculture, medical microbiology, environmental and marine microbiology, and microbial products. It kind of sounded like one of those pharmaceutical ad promotion things. Well, since I'm working for a pharmaceutical industry, maybe I am turning into one of them. It's like one of those side effects. Side effects may include. But not nearly as fast. No, we can't do that here. So just like last time we did this, which I think was in, what, May? No. April, I think. Yeah, April. Yeah. We are working with our friends over at Microbytes. And I just love this site, guys. I really cannot, I can't praise them enough because I think they're doing some fabulous things. If you don't know Microbytes, they take microbiology articles and digest them for you into bite-sized portions, which makes it fit perfectly into our bomb. So this is really a match made in heaven. Gone are the days of reading only a paper a day. Those papers are so dense and boring. They really are. I have a hard time struggling to get through one a day. And they can take hours to read. And sometimes you have to read them like six times to even get like the big bullet points. But with microbytes, you can gain the newest microbe news in just minutes. And get this, guys. They translate their articles to multiple languages. I love it. Yeah, not only do they do English, but I think they also do French and Dutch, right? Yeah, and I think they have Spanish now as well, which is just, it's so inclusive, and I love the idea. So, Tess, why don't you get us started with our first microbytes piece on extremophiles? All right, let's get into it. So, this piece for extremophiles and space chromes is a love story. It's called on the Microbytes website, the title is A Bacterium and an Archaeon, Hand in Hand. The original article was Flagella Mediates Symbiosis by Takafumi Shimayami, Sushiro Kato, Shunuichi Ishii, and Kazuya Watanabe. Wow, this is some hard names. I'm sorry if I pronounced them wrong. I tried. I'm glad you're on the show because you do a lot better uh, attempts than I Oh, man, my anxiety is so high every time I have to pronounce a name. Like, I really try. I really try, guys. And if you're listening and I pronounce it wrong, let me know and I'll correct it. So before we get into this article, there's a couple definitions that we need to discuss. The first is the definition of flagellum. John, do you know what a flagella is? It's kind of like a tail on a microbe, right? Yeah, it's a microscopic appendage. It's very slender and hair-like. When I do a lot of my drawings, I put it as hair or like a ponytail. Uh, It can add a lot of character, I think, to microbial cartoon drawings. It's predominantly used by protozoa, bacteria, and sperm, usually for motility. The next definition that we have to discuss is archaea. John, do you know what archaea are? I know that they used to be classified as bacteria, but they're more commonly known as like extremophiles. Yeah, a lot of them are extremophiles. They're sort of like bacteria, but also have some eukaryotic characteristics to them. 
So they're single-celled microorganisms without a nucleus, which is what bacteria are as well. Also like bacteria, they are called prokaryotes because they do not have this nucleus. There are three domains of life, archaea, bacteria, and everything else. So I think that is just such a fun way to look at diversity. Like bacteria have their own kingdom and so do archaea. And then we share our kingdom with like starfish and worms and dogs and insects. And fungus. And fungus. So it's like our kingdom has so much in it, but we're all more similar to each other than all the bacteria. What? It's really hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? Yeah, so much diversity in prokaryotes. So archaea differ from bacteria in their cell walls and all in, and in their DNA replication and translation machinery as well. In the tree of life, archaea kind of rests between bacteria and eukaryotes. So why do we put this in extremophiles? John already touched on this a little bit. Archaea and bacteria may look fairly similar under a microscope, and neither one can be seen with the naked eye. But both, but they're quite distinct from each other, and both can have extremophile characteristics. Many archaea are extremophiles. They survive in the harshest environments, such as environments with high salt or low oxygen. Many of them, include the one of today's story, can even breathe, so to speak, methane instead of oxygen. Sometimes microbes in these extreme environments will pair up to help obtain a specific resource, and they, this is also known as syntrophy. It's a sort of kind of symbiosis. So let me introduce you to today's characters. Our leading actress is Pelotromoculum thermopropionicum. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard one. Well, I think the next one's really hard, too. Okay. Woo! We'll henceforth refer to her as Patty. And our starring actor is Methanothermobacter thermoatrophicus. Right. Yeah. So we're going to call him Met. So Met and Patty are lovers. They're best friends. They hang out all the time. But like any couple, it's essential to work together and solve common problems. And one thing that helps with that is knowing each other's love language. Aww. Fortunately for Patty and Matt, they have the same love language, which makes it sort of easy to connect and communicate all the time. So do you know what their love language is? I have no idea. What is it? It's touch. So Patty has a flagella that is perfectly matched to Met. And she sticks out her little flagella and she touches Met and he feels all love and gooey inside. So what does this touching do? So what happens is they form a safe space, a comfortable space for each other and to enjoy a delicious meal together. So what's on the menu for this romantic rendezvous for two? Pasta and meatballs. Not exactly. So Patty will have a big old heaping of sugar. And Met? Well, Met's having what she's having, but only after she has it. Patty transforms her sugar into alcohol, which as a byproduct is carbon dioxide. So Met takes her leftover, so to speak, and turns it into methane. And who doesn't love a partner that can put bread on the table all the time? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So that is our story of a bacteria and archaea walking hand in hand. Isn't that cute? That was cute. Oh, I loved it. 
you know, more recently, I find, I think uh, science is finding like two bacteria or extremophile species working in tandem. Yeah, for the longest time, I think we've always, we started looking at silver bullets. Because I think like in the pathogenic world, we have, so to speak, silver bullets, right? One pathogen causes one disease. But I think symbiosis, it's so much more complex, requires a lot more knowledge. Yeah, this reminds me of that uh, paper I saw about two clostridium species that fuse together and they share protein. Oh, yeah. Did we do that on this one? We definitely put it on the blog. Yeah, that one is really interesting. All right, should we move into category number two? Let's do it. Let's dive into food and agriculture. What you got, John? So I have an article from, I believe it was scientist.com, and it was... Uh, article called Scientist Above a Fungus to Battle Deadly Honeybee Parasites. Ooh, this one sounds fun. Yeah, it really was. It found it really exciting. But like, so bees carry mites. And I actually talked to someone at work who used to have uh, beehive and they said mites are a huge problem. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and these mites are called Varroa destructor, which I like. The last name because they just decimate hives, I believe. Yeah, I love it when when they're like, we'll just make this word sound kind of Latin-y and then just stick it on there as a as its a scientific name. Yeah, and these these mites, they're like little red uh, insects. And they can spread viruses throughout the bee colony. Oh, that makes sense. And these mites have also been developing uh, an increased resistance to the pesticides that uh, beekeepers use. Bum, bum, bum. Somehow that's not surprising to me at all. Not at all. I mean, nature adapts. Mm-hmm. They sure do. And there's a new fungal strain called Metarhizium frenium that has been developed by researchers from the University of Washington to combat this mite. And this method of using microbes to treat against insects is called biopesticide. Yes, I love when we use biology to fight biology. It's like my favorite thing. So this microbe works by landing on the mite, and then it bores through the exoskeleton. And gro- bores with what? It develops this little shoot that goes through the exoskeleton, and then it starts going throughout the mite and just dies, and eventually bursts out of the mite. Mm, okay. But there's a problem with this. What's the problem? So, the fungus doesn't grow well in the temperatures of beehive. Beehives can get up to, like, 35 degrees Celsius, which is almost... Wow, that hot? Wow, yeah, human temperature is, what, 37? Yeah, 37 Celsius. And so what they had to do is they had to put the fungus under different stressors. And the way they did that, this is to, like, starve it or... Subjected to hydrogen peroxide. Aw, they tortured the poor guy. But this increases the microbes' mutation rate. So after stressing it, they tossed it in an incubator and slowly raised the temperature. And they selected for the spores that would grow at the beehive temperature. Ooh. So this kind of hails back to a previous one we did, too. Because historically, people haven't been getting fungal infections. More recently, in the past decades, humans have been seeing more and more fungal infections and more fungus have been identified as pathogens. And the leading theory is due to climate change, because, as I said, fungus don't really grow well in human temperatures, but as the plant's temperature rises, it selects for that fungus to grow in those temperatures. 
I sort of wonder like how long it took them to get to the point where they could get a fungi that grew at such high temperatures. Do you know? I do not. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. That's what that's like another element of microbiology that I just love. Like we can understand their genomes and do genetically modification, but we can also sort of manipulate environments to do sort of an accelerated yet natural evolution process. Right. So then it's it's not genetically modified if people have an issue with that, and like that's just fine. But there's a second issue that arises after getting them too used to that temperature. Really? Yes. Ugh, there's always problems in science. So if you grow a pathogen in a lab long enough, it loses something called virulence, or these things that allow them to infect. True, true, true. Because they're, they're not... They don't have to. They don't have to protect themselves anymore. Right. Microbes are really good at that. They're like, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. They can make that gene dormant or they can kick it out entirely. Yeah. It takes a lot of resources to make a lot of the virulence factors, too. Right. And the easiest way is the best way for a microbe. Mm -hmm. Don't overcomplicate it. They're all about cats. Exactly. Keep it simple. Stupid. Stupid. (laughs) That was so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it in. So now they need to select for these fungi that have the virulence. So what do they do? They infect the mites of beehive. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the mites don't die. Uh-oh. But they take the fungi from the mites that have died, and then they reinfect into another hive. And then they do it again. And I think they did it like a, uh, three times. And the mortality rate of the mites went from 4% for the first time they did it to 60%. Wow. And Wait, why? Uh, because they're selecting for that virulence. Oh. So each time they infect, it gets more and more efficient. And so now you have a fungus that is not only heat tolerant, but is also producing its virulence factors and able to infect these mites. And they put it up against, I forget what the other pesticide was, but it worked as well, even after an 18-day period. Wow, really as well as a pesticide? Yeah. That's crazy. I love it. So, this is a really promising uh, step towards treatment. However, the overall efficacy still needs to be tested. And the research team also wants to develop more effective strains. So, they want to get above that 60%. Hmm. And I wonder if this would also impact the bee, was it colony bee die-off? The bee coll- colony collapse? Colony collapse, that was. But then, the, because you're, they, didn't they start linking colony collapse to pesticides? And so, if you're using less pesticides and more of this uh, natural or, or fungal, Remedy, you could potentially help with the colony collapse too, right? Right, exactly. Interesting. I love it. Yeah, that was a great article. Yeah. So we're going from agriculture and we're transitioning over to medical. What do you have for us? So this is another one that comes to us from the gals over at Microbytes, and they are titled this article as The Skin's Frenemy. The original article was called Staphylococcus epidermidis protease, protease ECPA can be deleterious component of the skin microbiome in atopic dermatitis. I like the skin's frenemy better. Yeah, that's a, that's a very common uh, scientific paper name. Yeah, very common. So the original article and research was done by Laura Sow, Michael R. Williams, Anna Butcher, Tissa Hatta, Alexander Horsewell, and Richard Gallo. 
And I think this one, I talk a lot about Star Wars, so <laughs> put on your nerd caps, because we're about to go to the dark side. All right. I'm loading up Disney Plus right now. Put, put up your Darth Vader helmets, because we're about to go to the dark side. So this one is for anyone who's ever suffered from eczema or atopic dermatitis. This is an inflammatory skin disease. It can be itchy, causes red, flaky skin, and it's caused by a number of different things. So I want to remind everyone that we are ecosystems. We have trillions of microbes that call you home. And most of the time, we all live rather harmoniously, but on occasion, things can be thrown out of whack. Symbionts can become pathogens. Jedis join the Sith, and the Force is thrown into darkness. Were you watching Star Wars while making this uh, article? No, never. I don't have Rebels on in the background when I'm doing work. That's silly. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Okay, back to eczema. This is a multifaceted disease that includes genetics, the environment, the immune function, skin microbes, all playing a role in interacting with each other that's going to create the severity of the disease. Often... The Sith Lord in the situation is Staphylococcus aureus. But there might be an overlooked Jedi dabbling in the dark side from time to time, known as Staphylococcus epidermidis. Ever heard of it? Yeah. Um, I saw it a lot when I worked in the hospital. I mean, that's a really common uh, skin flora. Yeah. And usually it doesn't cause an infection. Right. So scientists have created a multiverse system. They played out one world of dark side Staphylococcus epidermidis and one world of Staphylococcus epidermidis that remained on the light side and kept being a Jedi. Okay, Anakin. And they looked to see, well, what are the differences between the two? What causes Staphylococcus epidermidis to switch from Jedi to Sith? Now, you might say, well, it's love or hope or power, vengeance, as we see in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> but it was actually, in this case, a protease. Now, protease are molecules that break down proteins. And in the case of Staphylococcus epidermidis, this protease is called ECPA, which can degrade the skin barrier. In all of us, there is love, there is hope, there is power. We have the potential to be heroes or villains in our own stories. And the same goes for Staphylococcus epidermidis. They all have this ECPA enzyme, protease. They all have the power to cause skin damage. So what actually is making the switch? And the key here is communication. Just like Anakin having the communication. The Sith Lord just whispering in his ear enough to make him think. The dark side was the answer to his love problems. Damn Sidious. Damn Sidious. Bacteria also communicate with each other. And this is a process known as quorum sensing. It's a very primitive form of communication, and I know there's probably lots of people in this world who would prefer to communicate more on quorum sensing than with words and feelings, but <laughs> that's for another debate. <laughs> uh, anyways, I cracked myself up. It's so funny. <laughs> I just can't even. <laughs> okay, no one else found that funny except for me, I know, but. Just give me a second. I'm going to come back around to it. For Staphylococcus epidermidis, when they have a certain cell density, they communicate with each other and start producing this ECPA. And just like not all Jedis are strong, as strong as Anakin, 
some Staphylococcus epidermidis are stronger in producing ACPA than others. Does that metachlorian count? So when there is an imbalance in the force, that causes overpopulation of Staphylococcus epidermidis. And those that strongly produce ECPA can get... And, and when you have a lot of Staphylococcus epidermidis that has a strong potential to produce ECPA, you can get eczema or atopic dermatitis. And that was my story of Jedi and Sith Lords in the microbial world on your skin. That's pretty interesting. I wonder why some are more efficient or overexpress this gene. And also, like, can they create eczema creams that, like, try to inhibit this gene production? Yeah, well, I think in one of our debombs in the past, we actually talked about, uh, I think it was Staphylococcus epidermidis as a skin cream against MRSA. So it's just like the when you're talking with microbes, like you get down to the species level, it almost still doesn't mean anything. Like you can have a Staphylococcus epidermidis that can be beneficial to MRSA. You can have one that's going to cause you eczema and you can have one that does absolutely nothing. But they're all the same. <sighs> so cool. Yeah, there's there's a lot of examples out there of like species level, like they do vastly different things It's because they grow up in different environments. And so. Maybe they'll pick up a gene somewhere or get more efficient at something else. It's so conditional. Just like, you know, if Anakin wasn't where he was, where he was, he wouldn't have turned out how he did. Right. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Those children could have survived. That's Star Wars story. Yep. Microbe edition. <laughs> Call us up, Disney+. Plus. We have plenty of ideas. Mm -hmm. Anyways, moving away from Star Wars, I think. Well, definitely moving away from medical microbiology, let's dive into environmental and marine microbiology. John? All right. So this is, I believe, the third article for Microbytes, and they titled it A New Letter to the Genetic Alphabet. How many letters are in the genetic alphabet? It's way easier than English. I mean, everything's easier than English. I mean, four. And if you talk about RNA, then B5. Wow. Just five letters. Simple. What are they? I got to kind of need to go into a little bit of uh, basics to describe this article first. Yeah. So Yeah, give us a genetics 101 course, crash course. So everyone knows that all living things and viruses have DNA or RNA and is made out of nucleotides. These are the code that's used by the cells to function. And these nucleotides are called adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. And they're always depicted as A, C, T, and G, respectively. DNA is also made up of two strands that are complementary to each other, where A bonds to T and C bonds to G. So if one strand has a T, then the complementary strain will have an A on the same spot. It's also important to note that the bonds between the nucleotides are hydrogen bonds. These are like weak bonds, but they're what keep the, uh, the strands together. And so A and T have two bonds, and C and G have three. The more hydrogen bonds there are, the more energy is needed to break the bonds between the nucleotides. And this is important when you do things like PCR. You need a certain temperature in order to break these bonds. Yeah, so when you have um, a primer, for instance, in PCR that has more GCs than ATs, you need a higher temperature. Exactly. And these bonds are what give DNA the double helix appearance. Yes, which is so pretty. It is. I have a tattoo to my arm. You do too. Yep. Yeah, that's how pretty it is. We tattooed it to our arms. Nerds. So you said when we were talking about RNA, there's five letters. What's the fifth letter? Uracell, which is depicted as U. 
And where does that fit into this whole thing? So Uracil actually replaces thymine and RNA. Oh, so even RNA is just a four-letter alphabet. Right. Hmm. But in 1977, it was found that a bacteriophage, or a virus specific to bacteria, is designated as S2L. Are we becoming bacteriophage people? Maybe. I think so. I'm okay with it. You okay with it? Pretty cool. I mean, we love all microbes equally, and we don't have any favorites at all. Right. <laughs> but this bacteriophage didn't have adenine in its genetic material. What? It had a similar nucleotide, which was designated as Z. Z? Well, we skipped a lot of letters. I don't know where they went to Z, but it's Z stands for dianopurine. What? There's not even a Z in that word. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't Ugh. pick D, but whatever. And this paired with T. And in 1998, it was found that this Z nucleotide pairing to T has three bonds instead of two. Oh, I think I know why they did Z instead of D. Why? Because they were hungry and they really wanted ZT. Okay. In April 2021, multiple research groups from France and China found the Z nucleotide in other phages. Oh, so it wasn't just this one, huh? Right. I wonder what, this is like 40 years ago or something. Yeah. What? What happened in the last 40 years? I don't know. No one cared about ZD. No. <laughs> no one cared about ZD. <laughs> we had that. The no carb diets yeah. came in. No one, no one could eat ZD. That's why it fell out of. Right, but in 2021, it's all about you know intuitive eating, eating what you want. We can paused it back in our life. All right, let's let's swing back to microbiology. <laughs> so some of these phages also included a vibrio phage. I was wondering if we were going to start talking about cholera. We hadn't mentioned it yet. I don't know if it's specifically cholera, but it was a vibrio phage. Oh wait, but you can't say vibrio without also thinking cholera. I'm counting it. Okay, fine. Our, our weekly cholera call-out. And they also characterized the biosynthesis pathway of this nucleotide. So one group, Selman and colleagues, were able to show how guanine monophosphate was able to be synthesized into Z-triphosphate, which then becomes Z-nucleotide. So it's derived from guanine? Yeah, that actually surprised me. Wow, that's so weird. And furthermore, Valerie... Hezo and colleagues focused on DNA polymerase, or the enzyme that copies DNA, by creating a complementary strand for DNA. So, how that happens is, you know, when cells divide, before they do it, they need to copy their DNA. Well, they have an uh, enzyme that goes through, separates the DNA strands, and then DNA polymerase comes in and makes a complementary strand for each single one. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's copied. Okay. They found that these phages have a different DNA polymerase than other organisms. Really? Yeah. Huh. This DNA polymerase was able to, it was 30 to 90 times more efficient at incorporating the xenoglutide as opposed to A. Well, I guess that sort of makes sense. If you're going to have it different, you might as well use it. Right. Well, E. coli DNA polymerase was two times more efficient at using A than Z. Only two times? Yeah. So it could incorporate the xenoglutide then? Yeah, and wow. I think the phage one could, but not 
nearly as much. Right. So they figure out like what the Z nucleotide does or functions, or does it change the function of the overall anything? So scientists believe that this is an evolutionary advantage for phages. Why? It's to evade the host defenses, specifically restriction enzymes. Now, these are enzymes that look at DNA, they recognize base pairs, and they'll cut it. And if you cut phage DNA, it renders it useless. Mm. So if the organism that the phage infected doesn't recognize these nucleotides, it can't be cut. Right. So it's a defense mechanism. Right. Oh, that's so cute. Said no one ever. <laughs> except for me. I think it's adorable. Adorable when you can protect yourself. So adorable. And so cute. And this may lead to an increased host range in efficacy in phage therapy. Because if you think about it, phages have a narrow range of organisms. Mm-hmm. And it might be that their restriction enzymes and other organisms are just cutting that phage DNA. Right. Okay. So if you have this xenocotide, then you can theoretically increase the range. Hmm. I mean, there's other factors like surface cell receptors and all that, but, you know, I think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we move more forward in that in the next 40 years than we did in the last 40 years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> more ziti every day. More ziti every day. <laughs> so can you tell us about biotech? Yeah. So this article is called researchers create a quantum microscope that can see the impossible what does that even mean well we'll get into that for sure this comes to us from the university of queensland the friends down on doc i'm sure they hate that when you say it okay so this was a major leap what is the quote one step for one small step for man one giant leap for mankind yeah that's what this is from the University of Queensland, where researchers have created a quantum microscope that can reveal biological structures that would otherwise be impossible to see. I mean, a lot of biological structures are impossible to see without a microscope. I mean, almost all of them. Yeah, unless you consider your phalanges a biological structure. <laughs> I can see your phalanges. Ew. <laughs> The microscope is powered by the science of quantum entanglement, an effect Einstein described as spooky interactions at a distance. I just still don't even know what that means. Yeah, that's why I went to microbiology instead of physics. Yeah, Einstein is way smarter than we are. The best light microscopes used bright lasers that are billions of times brighter than the sun. But fragile biological systems, like a human cell, can only survive a short time in them. And this is a major roadblock, says lead Professor Bowen on the microscope project. They also said that the quantum entanglement in our microscope provides 35% improved clarity without destroying the cell, allowing us to see minute biological structures that would otherwise be invisible. Australia's Quantum Technologies Roadmap sees quantum sensors spurring a new wave of technological innovations in healthcare, engineering, transport, and resources. Professor Bowen said that the breakthrough will spark all sorts of new technologies, from better navigation systems to better MRI machines. So, like, I'm curious of what those images look like. I bet you they're better than HD. Better than 4K? Better than 4K on a curved screen. Whoa. Whoa. Probably need glasses to shield your eyes from the beauty in these microscopic pictures. 
Well, if they're if they're so bright and beautiful, then they're more intense than the sun, aren't they? Well, yeah, but they're still holding the cell structure, so should be cool. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, I don't really understand it, but if they can get a better structure without killing a cell, that actually helps looking at cells over time period. Yeah, it definitely has a lot of applications for the future. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our show. What was your favorite news article? Was it a bacterium and our can walk hand in hand? Our love story for two? Or maybe the fungus that helps combat bee mites? Or the Jedi tale, the Star Wars tale, and through the lens of microbiology, the skin's frenemy. Or the fact that there are viruses out there that have a different nucleotide. And they're learning new alphabets together. Or was it the researchers that created the quantum microscope? You can tell us your favorite article by emailing us at microbigals at gmail.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Microbigales. And please, please, please join us next week. We have a super awesome podcast next week where we are interviewing, or not interviewing, but we have the thoughts of 12 major science communicators across the world tell you what their micro moment is. And we hope this will help you see how different everyone's micro moment is and realize your own unique micro moment as well. So everybody, keep enjoying your microbes, keep them healthy. Keep them happy. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye.